Not only did uh, Mark and Katie get in last night, but uh, Karen's parents got in last night as well, my wife's parents. And uh, I hadn't, we haven't seen them for two years. So yesterday kind of felt, I was trying to think of the emotion that I was feeling yesterday, and the closest thing I could come up with was when I was a little kid, and it was Christmas. It really was a wonderful, wonderful evening for me, uh, getting to spend time with Mark and Katie and their four kids, and, uh, and then to get to sit in the living room with, with my uh, with mom and dad, Basha. So it's a, it's a good day in the Seward house, and I think a good day at Maple Avenue. We're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 992. 992. So we'll be reading verses 1 to 7 from 1 Timothy 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy 3, 1-7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you this morning um, very aware that uh, we need your thoughts and your mind to govern this church, not our own thoughts. I, I'm very aware of that, and I pray that as, as I unpack these, uh, these different qualifications of an elder overseer, um, that you would, you would work by your spirit to give us clarity of, of mind and heart collectively as a congregation. And I pray that we'd also um, learn more of you and your ways. So work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a year ago that I asked the congregation to delay uh, bringing on new elders um, for, for one year. And it, the reason we did that wasn't because, um, you know, I, I had the little group of elders that we had and I loved them so much and I didn't want to upset the chemistry. Though I will say, I'm really grateful for the men that God had uh, for this first year and a half of uh, being a pastor here to labor alongside. They're wonderful men. But that wasn't the reason. Rather, the reason was because I understand just how important it is that we have elders in our church who are the people that God wants for our church to be the elders. You know, I, I, as, a, as a pastor, I, I'm well aware of the fact that I have my own weaknesses, I have my own blind spots, 
And, and that's why God set it up not just to have one pastor over a church, but to have a team of elders leading together to work together. But it's not just important to have a team. We actually need to have the right people. I think of, uh, I, I didn't grow up real mechanical, and when I lived in Texas, I had two acres that I had to take care of, so I got myself a chainsaw. And a chainsaw takes two-cycle gasoline, which means you have to mix the right ratio of oil into the gasoline. Now, gasoline by itself is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. There's a lot of things you put it in, your car, your lawnmower, that run great with gasoline in it. But if you put the gasoline in your two-cycle chainsaw, it doesn't work very well. You'll ruin it. Even if you understand, okay, I need to have a mixture of oil and gas in here, but you don't get the right ratios, you can do damage to your chainsaw. And it's a little bit like that with the church. The elders have a really important role in the functioning of a church and how it runs and how, how, it, how it, the direction it goes, and even the culture and the feel and the atmosphere there. And, and we need to make sure we're looking to the manufacturer's instructions and making sure we get it exactly as God wanted it, we're putting into the machine exactly what's needed. Otherwise, we can do a lot of damage. There was a church down the street from us in Texas who, uh, um, in, in the South, sometimes you'll select elders for a variety of different reasons. Uh, maybe kind of, it's, sometimes it's called the good old boys club, kind of, these are the guys who are my friends, so I trust. They've been in the community for a long time. They're successful businessmen or whatever. I'm actually not sure all the different criteria that went into selecting these elders at this church. But it wasn't the biblical qualifications. And particularly in some areas as it relates to understanding what the scriptures teach and some theological issues, they were, they were not qualified biblically as elders. And these elders proceeded to lead the church in some very unhealthy directions, letting in some kinds of teachings and ideas that were not healthy, that were not biblical. And pretty soon that, that church started to go down a very unhealthy road, from being a solid Baptist church to being a church that uh, I don't even think was preaching a right gospel. And I could give story after story, well, I, I could give several stories of situations where Men who are not qualified to be elders were put into the position for whatever reason. And it had a negative impact and a damaging impact on the church. So it's very important that when we think together as a church this year, who are we going to be putting forward as elders? Who are we going to be um, calling to be elders of this church? That it's not, it's not based on, hey, this is what I'm used to. I'm used to putting gasoline in the, in the, in the engine or or what, what seems right to me, but that we really say, God, what is it that you want? And God thinks it's a very important issue. That's why it's not just once, but twice he lists the qualifications for an elder or overseer. So we read this passage, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, also in Titus 1, 5-9, there's qualifications given for an elder overseer. As part of the process laid out in our Constitution for selecting elders and overseers, one of the things that we're called to do is to look together as a church at those qualifications. I remember when I was thinking about coming here and reading through the bylaws. Yes, I did that. And uh, I, I saw that section. I was really impressed that the actual bylaws of our church call on us to collectively look to the qualifications of elder and overseer in the Scriptures. 
As a matter of fact, in your mail slots, for all the members of our church, in your mail slots, um, there's a nomination, or a recommend, I don't know what the exact phrase is, you can recommend different people as elders, but in that packet is a list of each of the qualifications laid out in Scripture, and kind of just explaining a little bit what that's to look like, so that you can not be just praying through, okay, who do I think is good, but actually looking to the qualifications and saying, who are the men in our church who most embody that? Now, before we get into the various qualifications, I'm going to go through them in 1 Timothy 3. But I, I think it's important for us to make sure and be clear on, on what exactly the role of an elder overseer is. And it actually becomes quite clear when you look through the list. I don't know how closely you were paying attention as I read through the list here in 1 Timothy 3. But the famous Canadian theologian D.A. Carson uh, said of this list, the only remarkable thing about this list is how unremarkable it is. There's a sense when you look through this list, these are things that every Christian should be. You know, it says, uh, you know, not violent but gentle. It's not like that's something, well, for all the other Christians, it's okay to beat each other up and yell at each other, just not the elders. No, this is, these are things that we all should embody. But there is one quality that, that is a unique quality that stands out over against the rest. Because it's not just a, a general character issue. And that is able to teach. Now, there is the aspect of not being a new convert, but that is also just to prove character, right? So they're all character-related except for that able to teach. And that's because central to the role of an elder is the ability to handle God's Word and understand it. Now, we're going to get into that qualification a little bit later, but even in Titus, that same qualification is expanded on. It says somebody's able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Because the one thing that, that's, that's unique and distinct about what an elder is going to do is they're going to be leading us by God's word. So they're called an overseer, so there's an overseeing role. They're called to shepherd. They're called to teach. But with all those things, it's so important that they be able to understand God's word and think in light of God's word and be able to explain why what we're doing is from God's word and not from their own idea. So that's the one thing, as you look through the traits, that's the one thing that stands out to you because that's the one thing that really is distinctive about the role. Now, this makes sense because um, if you've been here long, you'll know I say over and over and over again, I'm not the head of the church. Christ is the head of this church. That's very important. When you look to the Bible, the New Testament, over and over again, the person who's the head of the church is Christ. And if Christ is going to rule his church, he does so through his word. How do we know what Christ wants? It's through the word of God. And so, if that's how the church is to function, then the people who are to be leading the church need not to be the smartest people or the most charismatic people, but the people who can do the best job of figuring out what the Bible's saying. Now, all of us are gifted in different, different ways. And a person who's gifted in one way shouldn't despise someone else who's gifted in a different way, nor should someone who's gifted in a way look down on some and say, I'm better than you because I have this gift and you have that gift. That, that's not the point of this at all. Rather, what we need to be doing is saying, look, who, who are the people in our midst who can look to the Bible and think about a situation 
or a decision and think about it in light of what God has said so that we can be following Christ as our head and not them. In fact, if you have people who like to twist and distort the Bible to their own ends so it's driving their own agenda, those people should have nothing to do with the position of elder or overseer. So, what, what we're trying to do is, is not uh, create a situation where, where there's this group of men who are on a higher plane, who are the, the spiritual giants, the, the great men, and everybody else is down here. We're all collectively one body under Christ our head. And as we collectively look to Christ our head, we say, okay, who are some of the men who are gifted in being able to handle God's word and lead that way? Now, talking about that being gifted to handle God's Word, that doesn't mean necessarily everyone who likes to talk about the Bible or who knows a lot about the Bible. Because, actually, in 1 Timothy itself, it talks about people who delight to discuss the law, and yet it says, really, in their heart, they know nothing of God, and they're damaging. That's why the ability to teach is only one in a long list of qualifications, because there needs to be a character that comes with that. A character that adorns the doctrine, a doctrine that, that proves that these things that they, they're about in teaching and handling God's word aren't just, hey, I like to be about that and I get puffed up and think I'm great because of that, but rather there's a character that shows their doctrine is real in their own heart. So with that as kind of a backdrop, let's look to these qualifications. And I want to just really encourage you to think deeply about this and start right now be praying and saying God by your spirit put in my heart put in my mind who are those men within our own church there's some who aren't members here who won't be you know filling out the recommendation form or whatever else but all of us need to be thinking about how does God want his church led and let's look to that instead of our own criteria let's look to God's criteria now, as I go through this list, you're going to say, wow, that's a pretty high standard. Yeah, those are things that, in a sense, we all should be, but that's still a real high standard. Are we looking for the perfect man? Um, and it's, it's important to keep in mind, like, look, if, if this means that you have to be perfect in order to be an elder, we all need to just mail it in, we're done, right? I need to step down. Um, these, are, these are character traits. So, for instance, when it talks about not being a lover of money, it doesn't mean that you could have never had a covetous thought. Rather, it means your life isn't characterized by a love of money. When it talks about not being quarrelsome, it doesn't mean you could never have gotten to an argument that you shouldn't have gotten into. It just means you're not characterized by somebody who's quarrelsome. Does that make sense? So we're going to go through these traits, but keep in mind, it's not saying if you've ever done anything that's just not exactly that, then you're off the map. Rather, we're saying as we look at these traits, let's think about the people in our church, the men in our church who, who best embody these things, and let's look to them to be our elders. So the first one there in verse 2, an overseer must be above rep reproach. Basically, that means there needs to be no glaring issue in their life that says, this man is disqualified. Certainly, even as you look through this list, that there's nothing that stands out in this list that's a blight on that person's character. This idea of above reproach is in, in the eyes of people. 
that, that collectively, as we look at this person, we don't see this major character flaw in them. Which is one of the reasons why it's so important that this, our, our, our process as a church starts with the congregation as a whole, identifying prayerfully the men who meet these qualifications. In fact, as our process lays it out, we start with the person who has the most commendations within the church, and we work our way down the list from there. So that's because we trust this qualification of above reproach and saying we collectively, as we pray about this, are saying this person stands out as above reproach in those areas. The next qualification is the husband of one wife. Or some translations say faithful to his wife. The Greek behind it reads literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That means this man, is his life is characterized by faithfulness to his wife. He may not even be married, but even by the way he lives his single life, he shows that he is committed to holding the marriage bed in honor, and as, as Hebrews talks about, or, or honoring monogamy, even in his dealings with women. You know, this isn't the guy who's got the wandering eye, right? This is, I, I think of, um, I think of the... Uh, the Johnny Cash song, Because You're Mine, I Walk the Line. Do you guys know that one? I find it very, very easy to be true. Um, he talks about in that song, just, I am faithful to you. You are my wife, and I don't, I don't go after anyone else because you're mine. That's what we, we need to be people. It needs to be a man who walks the line. There's a man, uh, when I was a kid, I remember my, my parents were talking. His name is Bob Williams. And he was a businessman who had to do a lot of traveling and was having to take clients around and always had uh, other co-workers in the car with him. And uh, whenever he was riding and, and there was a, a female sitting in the back seat of his car, he would just take his rear view mirror and flip it up because he had noticed at times what he felt was maybe a girl trying to catch his eye or something like that. It wasn't a way to be derogatory towards anybody. It was just his own safeguarding, his commitments to his wife. That's the kind of people we need in this role who are characterized as being a one-woman kind of man. The next trait is sober-minded. <laughs> the word really just means sober. And, of course, it's used figuratively here of, of not being an inebriated thinker. He's clear, balanced, and free from excess in his thoughts. I love how uh, Romans 12.3 puts it. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, he's not so convinced that his ideas are great and he's great that he can't think clearly. There needs to be a humility in that clear-mindedness, sober-minded. The next one is self-controlled. Simply put, this is pretty straightforward, he is not controlled by his appetites, by his impulses, or by his emotions. The next trait there is respectable. The Greek word behind respectable conveys the idea of an orderliness to one's life that, that breeds respect. So I, sometimes you think of 
that guy who's kind of the Tasmanian devil. You know, everywhere he goes, he's spinning around a vortex of chaos and confusion. That's the opposite of this word. There's a, there's a dignity to this man, a respectability to this man. The next word is hospitable. I, I learned this for the first time in studying this. The, the etymology of the word, the word literally is just the word love and stranger together. A lover of strangers. It's, it's a man who, who everywhere is on the lookout of making people feel comfortable and at ease. It's not just like, hey, I've got a big home and I invite people into it. I think of uh, Stan Dodds. Stan Dodds was a man who, no matter where he was, he had a way of looking around the room and finding just the person who was feeling a little uncomfortable, a little ill at ease, and he'd go and he'd greet them and he'd make them feel comfortable. When you went into his home, he was only oriented towards setting you at ease. There's a generosity of spirit, just a, a, a warmth and a care for others in this man, hospitable. Now we get to the one that I kind of flagged earlier, there at the end of verse 2. Able to teach. Do turn with me real quick to Titus, because I want to see. Titus elaborates on this a little bit more. It's just a few pages ahead on page 998. Look there at verse 9 of chapter 1. Titus 1 9. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So this idea of hold, worm, hold firm, it's, it's an idea of holding on to it, guarding it, but it's also, there's a sense of being devoted to it. So this is somebody who's always learning, always giving himself to it and holding on to it, holding fast, and to the trustworthy word as taught. That is what, what Christ passed down to the apostles and with the Spirit inspired as those apostles gave us our New Testament, this message, the biblical message, the message taught in the Scriptures is what this man is devoted to and given to. And then look what it says. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That word sound is just the word for healthy, vibrant, whole, good. So the kind of teaching or doctrine or instruction that is going to produce health in us because it's true to God's word. He's able to do that. He's able to say, here's what's healthy for you. And the food that he is putting into people's mouth, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation in a small group or for some standing in front of others, it's somebody who can give people things that are healthy from God's word, sound, whole, good. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word rebuke means bring to light. The Greek word behind that means bring to light or expose. So when something's going on within this church that's just a little amiss or a little afoul with the sound teaching of Scripture, maybe it's a little trend in, in culture that's seeping its way into church, or maybe it's just a little cockeyed thinking on some principle in Scripture. This is a man that should be able to smell that out and actually show, bring to light that this is not what the Bible teaches. So you see, apt to teach, 
does not mean that we're looking for the person who's the most charismatic, uh, engaging teacher. Apt to teach has everything to do with how you approach God's word and handle God's word. So, so think about it. Think, on the one hand, you have a guy who's a really engaging, dynamic communicator. On the other hand, you have somebody who's maybe not quite as captivating. Maybe even, say, boring in front of a group of people. But, perhaps in those one-on-one conversations or in a context where they're thinking through a decision, he has the ability to go to God's word and say, this is healthy direction to go. This needs to be exposed as an unhealthy direction to go. Who is the one who is apt to teach according to biblical qualifications? It's not the dynamic communicator. It's the man who knows God's word, who can think from biblical principle. In fact, later in 1 Timothy, they'll make a distinction between elders who, who uh, are, are generally functioning you know, as elders and then those who are regularly up in front of them, uh, up in front of people teaching. So not every elder has to be somebody who can stand in front of a group of people and hold their interest and show them what's going on in the Word of God. But apt to teach means that they know the Bible well enough to give that sound instruction. They're gifted in their understanding of God's Word. Does that make sense? That's a really important one to understand, so I know I'm spending a little extra time on it. All right, let's go to the next one, back in 1 Timothy 3. Now, the beginning of verse 3. It says, uh, not a drunkard. Some translations might say not addicted to wine or addicted to much wine. And that, that's good because the word has the sense in it of addiction. And uh, certainly being a slave to alcohol would be uh, one of those problems. If, if you're regularly being drunk, then you're disqualified. But also, I think there's, if you bring that into today, it's not just alcohol that people or substances that people can be slaves to. So now with the rise of illicit drugs or even the misuse of prescription drugs, those types of things, if somebody really can't control themselves in those areas and isn't thinking carefully in those areas, then uh, that needs to be a, a red flag for us. The next one says, not violent, but gentle. Think about this. Is this a man who tends to escalate instead of diffuse a tense situation? Is it easy to get him agitated? Does he bully and get his way by force? Does he have a short fuse? If so, he shouldn't be an elder. Instead, we need somebody who is tender of love and care. His words should promote healing. I love in 2 Timothy, it talks about this in chapter 2. It says, this, this is an instruction to Timothy, but I think it captures this idea. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then listen, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
Now, this is going to bleed into the next qualification a bit. But do you see, he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, this is a man who understands it's not my job to change people's minds or convince them that I'm right. And once you see that it's God who changes people's hearts and not me, it frees me to not be a quarrelsome, violent, argumentative bully, but rather to be gentle, to give that sound instruction, to expose, but to do it gently and kindly, trusting God to bring the change. Like I said, that does bleed into the next one. Not quarrelsome. Now, it's important, I think, to understand this one in the context of all the others, right? So this doesn't mean that what we need is a bunch of yes-men. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm not quarrelsome. Sure, whatever you say goes elder chair or senior pastor or whoever it is. It's clear from the rest that the rest of the qualifications that, that we need men of deep conviction. Men who know and can defend the word. Men who care about leading well. Yet these men should be men who are gentle and not prone to squabbles. There's a a little story in my mind that kind of captures this. Uh, some of you know of the theologian J.I. Packer, Jim Packer. He's, a, he's an older man. Or, and uh, when, I was, when I was on staff years ago, uh, we had a little uh, internal debate going on amongst the pastors on, on whether it was appropriate for men to wear the color pink. And... Uh, and it just so happened that our church had the opportunity to have J.I. Packer in the pulpit. So staff would gather together before the service for a time of prayer. So we're all gathered together, and I have my one opportunity to ask J.I. Packer any question I want to ask him. And so I ask him, what do you think about men wearing pink? And J.I. Packer, embodying this not quarrelsome, not violent, but gentle spirit, says... Well, I'm not sure the Bible forbids it, but I think it advises against it. <laughs> Whether you agree with him or not, the spirit that he conveyed in that is exactly right. There's, there's 15 traits I'm going to be hitting. We're through 10 of them. I know there's a lot here, but we're, we're moving along. Thank you for keeping with me. We've got five more to go. And the next one is not a lover of money. Um, this, this is probably my American context speaking to me, but a lot of times in America we think if somebody has a lot of money in the church that somehow they need to be a leader in the church. But sadly, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times the reason that person has a lot of money is because he has pursued material possessions over and against prioritizing his family or prioritizing church or all sorts of other things that should be higher priorities. He is a lover of money and has established himself now, and now we say, okay, lead our church. Now, that's not to say every wealthy person is a lover of money. Some of the most generous, uh, not attached to material possessions people I know are wealthy. 
And it doesn't mean someone who's poor can't also be a lover of money. But we need to be looking. Is this somebody who has a, a generous giving heart who is not given or, or attached to material possessions? The next one is really important. In both 1 Timothy and in Titus, it's the one that's given the most ink. Verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? What it's saying is, this man we're calling upon to, to lead our church and to shepherd our church and to care for our church, much like a father should for his family. And if he can't do that well within the context of his own family, it's not a prudent thing to then put him as the one to care for the household of God. So if you think of his home as a garden, are the flowers wilting and languishing? Or are they vibrant? And even in a sense, in an appropriate sense, this is a metaphor, but you know, the flowers turn to him like, like a, a flower would turn to the sun and, and seek their warmth and, and life from him, that he's life-giving to his family, that, they all, that the, the children and the wife enjoy his leadership and welcome his leadership and don't chafe at it because of who he is. There was a man, we, at, at this point in the church that I was at, we didn't have elders, but we had the, um, our, our, our deacons somewhat functioned like elders, which is another long story, but um, there was a man that I was convinced should be in this deacon role. I pushed hard for it. So he was ordained by the church as a deacon, and very soon we started seeing some very troubling things in how he led and we tried to be gracious and understanding in all of it and kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. But the problems persisted and persisted. Now, at that point, we hadn't really, we didn't know what we were, de- you know, we didn't know what to think of it all, but we could tell something unhealthy was going on, at which point I got, got a call from one of his children reporting that he'd been abusing one of the other children physically. And uh, this, this adult child then went on to explain that when he was ordained as a deacon or his name came forward, it was really hard for her because she felt like she needed to come to the church and say, he's not the kind of man you think he is in the home. All the children were in agreement on that, and, and to a lesser extent, the wife. And, and the trouble that we had to deal with as a result of his leadership in the broader church was exactly the same things that were going on in the home. It doesn't mean that every child has to be perfect. I had to take my son out twice in the service this morning because of his behavior. Um, so <laughs> I guess it's not saying, well, if it's true of me, then it, it must be okay. But, um, but, but the idea is that what he's doing is cultivating health and cultivating a healthy culture there. That even as children, they don't have, may, maybe they'll grow up and, and not be Christians. But th- there's a, even a, the way they view the church, it's a positive place, it's a good place because of how dad and that our family I see it as a positive thing. 
spend a little longer on that one again because I think it's one of the, the most helpful clarifying things. And even that's, that's one of the things when, when our, with our process that we were thinking through is, and the elders are still in a little bit of conversation with this, so if you have ideas, let us know. But um, how do we get a sense for what the family feels about his leadership? How do we give an, uh, a, a non-threatening, not too awkward or weird opportunity for the wife and children to be able to say something of, or to get a sense for how he leads his family? So that's one of the things we're thinking through, and that's going to be part of our process. All right, now on to the 13th qualification, which is uh, in verse 6. He must not be a recent comfort, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The Greek word is neophyte. Have you ever heard that word? It means newly planted. He shouldn't be new to the faith. There should be a sense in which this man, who he is and his character, has had opportunity for real testing to prove its genuineness. Because you don't want a guy who comes to faith, is a hot shot or whatever, and you know, just rises up without any kind of testing. And now he's got a position of spiritual influence and certain issues that are in his heart were never dealt with. Then the next is, he must be, uh, verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Um, I, I think First Timothy 3 says, defines this one the best, so I'm just going to read verses 13 to 16. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now listen to this. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, to be, have a good reputation with outsiders isn't mean that no one can ever slander you or no one ever could say, speak ill of you. And, and as, as we, we move as a culture more and more secular and less and less Christ-honoring, there, there will be um, opportunities for insult. But there's a character about you and how you handle yourself that it doesn't stick. It doesn't grip. Because if people can tell who you are. The last trait, you know, I said that in Titus and Timothy there's lists and, and there's basically a lot of overlap. There's one thing that's mentioned in Titus that I think needs to be brought out here, which is not arrogant. You probably could say it's, it's been teased out by some of the other things, but you don't want the guy who's waiting around for the big seat at the table. What you're looking for is a guy who's willing to do whatever, the non-glorious work. He's willing to do the grunt work on the side. He's not looking for accolades. He's about serving. And he's deeply aware of his own fallen nature. He doesn't think he hung the moon, right? He knows he's prone to mistakes himself. He's prone to errors and judgments himself. He's sinful. So those are the qualifications. We've taken some time to, to go through them. I was trying to think of, in a sense, <laughs> kind of what we're doing doesn't hold up perfectly, but kind of what we're doing is picking a dad for the church. Yeah, we're not children, and we're all adults together, and I don't mean it like in that pejorative way, sensitive to the fact that right now I'm an elder of the church saying that, but um, 
but in the sense that a, a father's job is to lead and care and shepherd and teach and protect his family. And that the scriptures do call us to honor, obey, and follow our leaders. And I say us, and I mean me too. There may arise a situation where I need to be under the care of my elders. They need to be speaking into my life and directing me. So we need to be picking somebody who say, this, this is the right man to be the dad of this church. And these qualifications really lay out how we should be looking for that. It's this word, this word, that has told us the good news of Jesus Christ, right? That told us of our own sin and what Christ has done, what God has done about that in Christ. Redeeming us through his blood. Allowing us through faith to have new life and new hearts. It's this word that told us that. And if, if we trust this word for that, we ought to trust it when it tells us the types of people who should be elders or overseers within our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We don't have to guess and how our church should function or who should be leading. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to, by your Spirit, bring to mind the, the men in this church who most embody these traits so that we can have uh, the kind of elders you want, men who are helping us follow you, Christ, as our head. In Jesus' name, amen.